The instant the Dark Lord hears the prophecy about one destined to defeat him, he scoffs and notes standard self-fulfilling hero prophecy. Before ordering his minions to go to the hero's hometown and build a bunch of public works projects, the most important of which is a school. The other projects are soup or famine prevention schools for orphans, which may or may not be a great idea in the future if the school becomes overwhelmed with orphans. The Dark Lord has a penchant for making these projects come together, and is sometimes willing to order the various projects to have them completed. Once everyone is ready, he moves on to the next piece of the puzzle. He uses the same method of gathering information about this plot to create a large crowd. His most advanced followers are his own followers, who want to do the things that everyone else is doing, such as kill each other in private, stop the apocalypse, collect the great power supplies on an epic scale, all the way to the one time and time again events. Inevitably, the Dark Lord will make him happy. On the morning of April 25th the first project his minions are scheduled to complete, on a regular basis, he orders the great power supplies to be taken by the greatest hero to their homes with the help of a few soldiers and army officers, and all these things will be in progress by the time the day one of the super war is up and ready for him. As he looks down on the heroes, the soldiers go to look for answers, and if the great power is found, the great hero will take his stuff and go to the hero's home and get them some food. At 330 days after the event, the heroes see that the great hero is gone, and they begin building public works projects in order to stop the world collapsing. The great hero has been doing something that will affect a large swath of humanity for centuries now. They have finally made a big deal out of it yet again, and have made themselves the most hated people on the planet. There is no reason that anyone should even care about such things if they have to fight for their survival. They have made them do something they have done for decades, but it is more than a little sad that things are so hopeless. It reminds them of something they didn't even think there was a way to stop, something that has long been lost. The great hero has been doing something that will affect a large swath of humanity for centuries now. They have finally made a big deal out of it yet again, and have made themselves the most hated people on the planet. There is no reason that anyone should even care about such things if they have to fight for their survival. They have made them do something they have done for decades, but it is more than a little sad that things are so hopeless. It reminds them of something they didn't even think there was a way to stop, something that has long been lost. The hero didn't think it could come to this, and it won't be able to, so they have taken it. They only wish it would. If you want to see something that has been for so many years still alive, I suggest you take a look at this, for example, but in the end, when will it end? There is another reason this world might end. Chapter 14, The Great Hero, by J.B. Tsubasa. In the middle is a beautiful man. There is a man with the title Great Hero standing on top of him. He looks like he has just fallen into a dream, or maybe he has just been captured. This man looks more like one of the heroes we have seen before. This man walks through the streets of a city, wearing black gloves and with his hands outstretched and his chin in a wobbly grin. The man standing next to him is a little over 20 years old as well as 37 years old. The man holding the man's hand is tall, but short, and he is black with a bright red mustache. This man looks like he just lost everything, but not a single person or thing seems to be in any of his pockets. The man is looking down at his bag, saying nothing. He makes a long but powerful sound, but he doesn't look back. 
The man says, there is a beautiful woman down here and she is taking care of me. As a special favor will she give if and when you meet her? I believe that she should be staying with us we kidnap for an unknown purpose. I still hold my promise to the people of the city, and the city is my capital as well. The people of the city should welcome you and I will give you my blessing. And don't be afraid to tell her to get over the thing you did to the human being who went free and came back to help you. The man replies, we have both got to take care of our own well-being now. I will tell you exactly how you plan to do that. The man continues, looking down at his bag, and then he looks at the man. I will take them to make you understand that he told you he would take you to the city, and that he would carry you from here while you slept. This is all he says, in fact he has said it before as well, in the final scene of Serenity, and is repeated very often. The man does nothing to stop him. He looks down and thinks with amazement that he does not exist, and if you remember wishes he said that man was an idiot. At that moment it seems to me that they will be able to stop him. He will feel the warmth of the crowd passing by, he will feel the warmth of the people, he will feel their emotions passing through him. This will be the last moment they ever forget, and it will be all they know right now. He will see that his fate is in the hands of some terrible man who will find a way to save him or his friends and take them back. That moment in time is the moment they remember when they lived, and it will be the time they have not forgotten. Now imagine that this man has been watching over them for two years now, and has been doing something that will make them realize how much they miss him, and how much she miss him. Imagine that a part of them that loved you will be very worried, and they would be very happy that he was here. They will remember him. And remember how much they missed him and how much they miss him. The very moment these memories pass through them will give hope to others, give hope that something will come. Chapter 15, The Great Hero, by J.B. Tsubasa. There are five main characters, who can appear in the same year but can share the same nationality and race. One of the protagonists of a TV show, an American actor named Michael McVeese's character is not really her real name, but rather a character she shares with other Americans. It's not exactly her own character to be worried about, but it is very rare to see her in a show like that. She can also be an American character, and the American accent is quite the different from American accent. She's a kind gentleman with a bright future. At first glance, Fury Game, the series premise, is also very similar to an anime in that it focuses on young Japanese boys and girls fighting to become the greatest warrior in history. The main villains are mostly named after a series of characters from the anime. They include the most interesting newbies and most often, the uneducated people who can't be tricked into believing they are Japanese citizens. For the most part, there are two main protagonists, the newbie warriors and the nose roller. The nose roller is the real old world and the one who takes a cut from the old. That's why the newbie warriors are the one of the heroes in the series. The other hero is the older soldier, who has been born in Japan, who is in the process of becoming the first Japanese person to defeat the emperor, the Japanese emperor himself. While there are other female characters, the main characters of Fury Game also have their own genders and their own stories. They are different from each other so different that no one knows why they are the newbie and are a nose roller character. The main character of the series is actually a little girl named Yukiko. However, when looking at the main cast and voice actor and how they appear, I would say that most girls in anime go with the Japanese voice of Yukiko. 
When one looked at the screen to see the scene she was singing, one couldn't help but think oh my god these girls sing so incredibly well. She makes a good point in saying this. When you look at those scenes herself they can be viewed as a complete rehash of the Japanese script, for a while it was something like hey Yukiko, this isn't that easy. That is a part of the Japanese script that I have to make a point to emphasize. The main characters of the series are those of American actors. The two American movies are the so-called original and the remake it is based on. Furigame, though it is really American, is a very Japanese film called Furigame 2 it is written by Akami Suzuki in the script for Akira Toriyama's movies. It appears in many of the scenes in both Japanese movies, as well as in the final product. While only a part of the series is in Japanese, there is probably a lot of American scenes. The other big character here is the old man. He is the young American soldiers who have come to Japan. A lot of American soldiers came to Japan after World War II. This is something called Japan-Japan War. The Germans and the Americans did this so that the two countries could work together to bring about the peace treaty in a peaceful world. American troops helped put the war away so that even though there was still unrest there would still be peace and happiness. So that is why all of the main characters from the series, and all of the original characters in those films are Japanese. There is also an issue of the American government allowing Japanese foreigners. In Japan, foreigners must stay in the country, sometimes called the free country, for many centuries because they have the right to stay. There is not a Japanese government to allow the free country members of foreign countries a free passport, a passport that is issued as a visa. There is no such thing as a free passport or visa. In Japan, the laws for this free travel that is allowed to foreign people are actually quite strict. People must have a physical passport and have to carry identification. If Japanese officials refuse to make a person's visa available, they will imprison the person indefinitely. The government also confiscates passports, so it is very hard to obtain. In most countries, you can't travel with English speakers and American citizens. It is also a common practice for foreign students to travel in Japanese. And it is a very bad thing that Americans are forced to bring to Japan. In most countries, you can't travel with English speakers and American citizens. It is also a common practice for foreign students to travel in Japanese. And it is a very bad thing that Americans are forced to bring to Japan. This is a Japanese problem when you try to do cross-border work in those countries which have limited English language support. I think it is pretty much the default scenario, but let's do it anyway. Because the Japanese people will understand English, because everyone in the rest of the world understands English. So I think it is very important in Japan as well. When we talk here about the importance of this part of our system, we all know what it is. So it is the system that you see. The system that makes it even more desirable to go to China. It is like the system of the United Nations where your only chance of success is to remain independent. It's a system that makes the United Nations all the more important. It's the system you live in. It makes it possible to make a living through the system that makes it as good as possible. When we talk here about the importance of this part of our system, we all know what it is. So it is the system that you see. The system that makes it even more desirable to go to China. It is like the system of the United Nations where your only chance of success is to remain independent. It's a system that makes the United Nations all the more important. It's the system you live in. 
It makes it possible to make a living through the system that makes it as good as possible. But it does not affect your life as much as it would on a military mission on a field. It's the system that makes the United Nations all the more important. On the issue of the human rights response, where is the place of human rights with regard to the Chinese community? In China people are suffering. They are living in poverty, but there is no solution. In fact, I never believed that you should be the last hope that the situation would change. My only hope was not to make any statement about human rights, but rather to convince all the people that this problem of poverty and injustice was real. So it's going to make us all look bad and that's why we're here in Hong Kong where these Chinese people living in the community should give attention to this situation. You said that your priority is to bring development to other countries on the planet. In light of the issues that you have raised with all of us in China, what does your role lie in China? Do you work as a Chinese citizen that is able to do what you want for your country? In China we have to cooperate with each other to get things done with the Chinese community. We should not worry about the issues of the global community. Actually, I don't even know what to make of you on this. You would know that I'm not even a Chinese citizen. You would know that I've heard that you're never going to win elections. You can't make a ruling that China is making me change the rule of the global community. It's not my job that I put in place to find, for example, the winner of next Sunday's Super Bowl. It's not your job to keep the world united. Your work is only to make sure that there are many winners in this year's Super Bowl. How you deal with the human rights situation in China means that there will be many different people on different sides. How can you continue to help other countries and countries to find their own way about human rights? Well, at least the human rights issue may not be one of the highest priorities. The human rights issue is not one of the most important issues for the Chinese community. There are many people who have always wanted to come to China but never actually actually had it. There are many who simply have never felt it. But in general it's because I've never had a country that wanted to come to me, and this is especially true in China. My only hope for the future is to make the world move toward a future without this issue. As for the rights issue at hand today, the most important issue in the world for a nation that has become the main power for 25 years, that must be decided by the citizens. I'm not saying things have changed. I'm saying that a lot of people see the future in Hong Kong. Hong Kong is the main destination for me. Because we are a country that is divided into two groups, the Hong Kong government and the mainland. You might say Hong Kong government wants you to go to the mainland, but it's not the choice you make. If you don't want to go, then you either join a criminal organization, like the Lee Kung Lee or the Tiananmen Road Traffic Gang of the Ming Pao government, or try to enter Hong Kong, although the Lee Kung Lee still has many supporters from the mainland. On Hong Kong's situation regarding the government of Manchuria. The situation in Manchuria and China has not developed quite as smoothly so far since the mid-1970s. There is a difference of opinion amongst Chinese and Chinese-speaking workers and representatives of both groups on matters pertaining to the trade in goods and services of the two countries. It is clear that the issue raised by both men regarding the situation in China and on China's economic and political situation are of grave concern. It is evident that China is engaged in an industrial project, and the economic problems and obstacles that are plaguing it should give the Chinese and Chinese-speaking workers the time to improve their lives. But according to the present situation, 
It has been clear that the major issue of the future and present situation of the two countries are a combination of military, political, and human probability factors. And since China and its political leader, Tsai Ing-wen was elected Prime Minister in April of this year with a majority in the Legislative Council and in the Council of Ministers, that combination may not only lead to conflict with China. In regard to political, military and human probability factors, it is clear that there is the possibility of a situation where China becomes a major power capable of dealing with the issue of Chinese-speaking workers. In that situation we stand for one more step towards reunification and an end to the division of the world into three great powers from China and China-Russia. Question, can you give an overview on those things and then have a response? Would you refer to the situation among the Chinese workers and also to your question about how to manage it? The current situation in China is not so severe at this moment, and there can be no doubt. But it is evident that Beijing has not taken the steps needed to resolve the situation regarding those issues. It is clear that these steps will have to be taken, and that is what we intend to do. With regard to civil liberties and freedom of expression, there is a lot of uncertainty among Chinese workers and representatives of both groups. This fact means that, according to both views, certain issues like censorship and a right to vote, and the rights and freedoms that belong to China, are at risk. Also, there can be no doubt that the question of human rights and freedom of conscience are seriously endangered if China does not act on these issues. The recent situation in China and as a whole the current situation among Chinese workers and representatives of both parties was in a bad state. We need to see China's efforts to rectify the situation by creating a new policy to resolve these tensions. The current situation would not only be extremely difficult for both sides, but also it would also lead to conflict with China. The fact that Chinese economic growth has been rising in recent years is a warning sign that the world is still dealing with the real problems facing China as a whole. Question, can you tell us about the fact that today's Chinese government is using its power to exert their influence and to make demands? Is China really responsible? Under President Xi Jinping it is not hard to understand that he does not really care about the status quo. The current Communist Party leadership is completely divided. Those who do not belong to an anti-coup regime will no longer be present. Those who do belong to anti-terrorist forces will no longer be present. We cannot rely upon an anti-coup government any longer. On the other hand, there were already discussions about the possibility of a return to democracy, and the recent elections show that what the party is doing in China is indeed doing well and is not going badly. The current conditions of the political world indicate that there are serious issues of importance to be realized in all corners of the world. We have many such issues. We should, and we will, seek to improve the conditions of those issues in China. We will be very careful in our conduct in order to avoid all possible surprises as well as to provide clear, concrete reasons for the decisions taken by China since the end of January in the wake of the referendum of the country's People's Army. Because, clearly, China has not done anything like this. The current situation of China is not even something like what the former USSR experienced after Chechnya, and how it would continue going after the end of the war with the Soviet Union. Therefore, despite the current situation, as soon as Beijing talks about a return to proper democratic procedure, we are very sure that China would do everything possible to resolve the situation which is being played out in China. The real situation is, 
that not only have Beijing declared a return to the U.S. Western and NATO principle of political participation in international affairs, but Beijing is already threatening the situation of Syria. The military action, which many believe is just and necessary as part of Washington's new plan to counter terrorism in Syria, has already been carried out against a large number of the terrorist targets within the borders of Syria. It was confirmed at a UN General Assembly session that terrorists have attacked several major airports and were attacking targets in the Aleppo countryside while others were operating in the border areas between Aleppo and the Al-Wasar Mountains, according to the UN, which says that they have conducted attacks on government headquarters in the Aleppo countryside while also targeting civilians under the protection of the Syrian government. We are also told in some parts of the world, that the U.S. intelligence agencies have come forward and revealed that in October, Russia, China, Turkey, and Iran participated in military operations which included military use of missiles and special forces, military maneuvers for NATO, and training of U.S. special forces. We have also been told that China and Russia have made plans and preparations to wage war on the U.S. from their borders, which makes it very clear that they want to bring as much weapons as they can to the Syrian conflict as quickly as possible. It is absolutely essential that the U.S. forces are able to secure the borders of the Syrian state so that their troops can reach the border area after the use of these weapons. The United States has the right to defend itself. Russia's actions would be a violation of that right. These are the latest indications of what the U.S. is doing so that there is no excuse not to act. The question remains for the president-elect and his team, that would be a mistake for them as well, and to try and prevent an escalation in the situation with Russia. There is a way out. He and other leaders in Trump's camp have suggested that Russia is not the cause for what would be the dirt of the American campaign. That was not even the subject of an investigation as they would have told you that, as they say, there is nothing to hide. It is very clear that the president-elect has no choice but to face the truth and answer the questions. A person has to be in charge or a country that is not capable of answering his questions to answer them. He or she should not participate in that process. The fact that the U.S.'s actions are clearly based on a lack of leadership and an incomplete understanding of the situation in Syria is a clear indication of a lack of maturity and trust that is also on display here in America, as well. I would say that President-elect Trump is going to be asked how much he cares about the Syrian issue, about what his personal feelings about the Syrian crisis are. It has already changed. There has only been a single sentence or question uttered by Trump, which is why I asked Mr. Trump, whether or not he and his team believes that he wants to return to the USP to solve the Syrian crisis. This is a question that needs to be asked. I strongly believe that this presidential election has brought out that a lot of people in both parties have been disillusioned with politicians as they see a lack of political experience, that they have never been able to make a lasting change, that they have not given much thought to the issue of Syrian Syria. Mr. President-elect Trump would have a much different opinion on whether or not he is serious about the Syrian crisis than the leaders of the various countries currently doing their jobs in Syria. In fact, if there is a country where the U.S. needs to engage in an emergency crisis to stop terrorism, I believe Mr. Trump would be very positive, and I suggest to you that he would be rather positive even in the face of such a threat. I will show you that we can. 
We need to ask what that government's views on the Syrian crisis were before he chose to leave Washington and begin his presidency. That is a matter for the United States and the international community for President-elect Trump to discuss with representatives of all relevant stakeholders. We can only get a better understanding of where the United States stands on Syria. We cannot make it a subject that cannot be used to make decisions about U.S. foreign policy. Since this is the final stage, so that President-elect Trump can decide what is going to be the final policy on Syria on a massive scale, this is the final stage where Trump has put his trust and trust in Putin. I ask him to show his support for the Syrian president and to say that, for our American allies and allies, it's important to understand that Trump's choice for president has come from his own heart. I ask him to come out and say that we will stand together with the Syrian people, with our people, and with our whole coalition, and, as long as they do what they say, if there's hope for the future on every corner of that planet or, rather, that peace in Syria is possible. I promise I'll not let down our allies. Amy Goodman. Now, the Syrian people, when they say that Putin will be a prime candidate for the Syrian presidency, do they mean? Voa, yes, they mean what I said which is that the Syrian people would be the major force against Syria even though, in the grand scheme of things, we still see Assad as a dictator. He is still fighting his way through a civil war. He still continues to have an extremist ideology that leads him to violence. That ideology is in fact the Muslim Brotherhood in Syria. He has put up tanks everywhere. And now, the Syrian people are in the middle of a civil war, and Assad will be an asset for them and they are seeing that as a blessing in disguise, because no one is going to win it for Syria, because there is no way the US can stop it, or anyone else in Syria, because this is the next revolution. And that, in many ways, is to say, we are standing with them. We are standing with any party that doesn't go along with Assad, and there is no way that he can hold back. And they are watching that the United States can, even if some people who believe, well, there is only one way in which this whole system will fall apart in the next decade. And that will be through Assad losing control of his own country and with the Muslim Brotherhood in Syria leading him to the same fate as if he had never been president. Amy Goodman, we are joined today by our guest, Voa Russia Fellow, Professor Michael Walcott, Professor of Democracy, and we welcome you to Democracy Now! Voa Russia Fellow, Professor of Democracy, and professor of the Middle East at George Washington University. In this segment, we're discussing the upcoming presidential campaign of 2016, and he goes through the various polling findings and the questions from all of them. So can we get into the polls again to see who will the victor be, right now? Voa, well, I don't want to get into the details of this in order to get you interested, because I want you to know what I think. I don't want people to see there will be any outcome that has been predetermined. This is a process, and as President Trump, it is a process to see what comes out of this. Amy Goodman, so, are you happy to see in which polls people are willing to trust the Russians as long as the election is taking place? Voa, well, I'm going to be very honest. I mean, when one does that, or I think when they do that, for example when they tell the public their confidence level in the US, they have confidence that the United States is going to be in power. When they tell the public that the U.S. is losing in Syria, and the situation in Iraq how they tell people they have confidence that we're going to not only be able to achieve peace, but we're going to be able to bring about a peace deal. So, I don't want to get into the details of that election. 
I want you to know what everyone is happy with. They are going to be happy, even. And they are going to be happy. And they are going to be happy about it. The polls are coming back very strongly against the United States, very strongly. So, I think that's pretty important for them as well. And, as you say, they're going to be happy. And I think they'll be happy. Amy Goodman, let's talk about the new polls here. We'll be sitting down with our very own Michael Walcott, in front of NPR's Morning Edition. He's the political director of the Washington Post. And you joined us again on Democracy Now! Michael Woolshot, U.S. I'm sorry, this whole political circus of being a national leader. I mean, I think there's an inherent disconnect between your presidential campaign and your campaign in general, and your campaign here. And it's been quite the circus. Gross, but is that just, let's do it again and see what happens? We'll bring you back to the White House. Soundbite of archived recording. Gross, and now President Obama. He said recently he doesn't want to have another debate. He wants to be the one to answer that question. This whole new campaign over the last couple of days is being dominated by questions about what's happened since November. President Obama is the man, this is about a president who is willing to listen to all those voices. And we will see whether you, Senator Obama, can respond to it or not. But as John Dickerson asks, we must make some judgment decisions about what is real and what is not. And I think what I would do is let the voters decide that what's been said really is the truth. And if Barack Obama does not respond to that truth, he would be president and I would be happy to vote for the man with whom he is now engaged. So let me just start by asking myself. If it's not right that the debate, you know, takes the life of a man and the life of a man who, you know, has been here this whole time, and if the debate, you know, looks kind of cynical you could probably just ask me to vote for him. Now, if it looks like this is really about a guy who said what he really said about Mexicans and Mexicans, what he knows about Israel, what he doesn't like about Jews, what he does not like about Muslims, so then why don't we have some kind of debate? In 2008, President Clinton also had to decide whether to take the oath of office. He did so with a question about the Iraq war. But he also said on the campaign trail in 2006, he might choose not to go to war or to try to help the people. So that's sort of your choice as an officer in the line of duty. Or as somebody who was in the Pentagon, not as a senator, you know, as commander-in-chief. So I don't think I ever see Hillary Clinton walking into the White House with his campaign name hanging out there. Gross, President Obama, thanks so much. Inskeep, and I just want to thank all of you who are being very helpful. A lot of people in the Washington establishment have given me a chance to ask this one. So please forgive me, but I just need to know you're not in a position to answer your own questions. I've been telling people for quite a while why I'm not a big fan of the White House campaign because I've been doing this for a while and it's not actually happening very well. What's the next problem? This is so far behind the times and I'm still not sure what's actually in play. You know, I've always, you know, had no problem having campaign debates with both parties. So, no, I don't say I want our country to run itself at a high level. I think it's interesting right now to see how things are going in this country and what a real leader there is. I think people are really interested in the fact that we may have some real leadership in our country. But I also think it's very interesting of the Republican Party to see how, as you point out, there's an obvious leader. 
just to be sure the Republican Party is there in this country to help their candidate. And at this moment we are running a Republican congressional campaign. Anderson, it seems to me that they've spent some time really trying to build relationships, not only with politicians, but also with the president and the entire American people. But this was, you know, one of the first campaign debates that I ever saw the Republican Party doing outside the campaign convention. It was a couple of days before the election night. There was a small band of Republican congressmen of Congress who had spent the night in Chicago. And there you have the Obama campaign and Hillary Clinton and a small group of people in charge on the campaign trail. So, the next question is, of course, would I support Donald Trump, if we actually won, and would I support Hillary Clinton if we actually won? And in fact, the answer is no.